Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Aparutade sangamatasa tavara So, so just to inform the Sangha and the lay people present tomorrow is a traditional celebration for the late King Pumiponadulyadet's birthday, 5th of December. And he was born in 1927. If he's still alive, he'd be 94. And he was very, during my monastic time, it was, it was during, much of it during the, his life. And I feel a lot of gratitude because he was a very fine being and uh, was truly interested in Buddhism, meditation, and looking after the welfare of the Thai people as the best any single person can do. So it's strange being an American where Americans always pride themselves on the fact that we we don't have royalty, kings or queens, and we separated from Britain to get away from monarchies. And yet in the most of my life I've lived under monarchies, either here in the UK or in Thailand. So it's a good mirror for my American cultural background, which, you know, Americans are fascinated by kings and queens, even though they, they're proud that they're, they don't have such, uh, such things in their political system, social system. But this is about culture, and Thai culture... <coughs> It's very interesting, a very refined code of ethics and uh, behavior, very refined compared to the Western world. So sometimes, you know, we, we don't understand the Thai forms of etiquette because our social etiquette is, is based on different principles. But in... Thai, Thai society is very hierarchical structures that come down through tradition, forms. And then, of course, we find ourselves with this particular tradition, Theravada Buddhist tradition, the Thai forest tradition, as it interpretate, interprets the the. Uh, 
teachings of the Buddha, the Vinaya, and so forth. So tradition is something handed down from one generation to the next. And it, it preserves the values and conditions of past experience. Sometimes traditions are out of date and sometimes they can adapt and to modern times. And so in this tradition, we try to bring a, an ancient tradition into a modern European country. But the main emphasis is on Dhamma rather than on Vinaya. So Vinaya is, is the tradition, is the form that we are using, uh, which we adapt as best we can to the social conditions and climate difference here in the UK. And all traditions are forms, so they're impermanent, they're anicca dukkanata. So this is just trying to emphasize the, the, the importance of forms, because that, that's what we tend to identify with, with our forms. Like we, the ego, the sense of a separate self, is a strong belief and identity with the physical body that one claims as one's own. And so when you're born, when a newborn baby appears, manifests into the world, you know, it has, it has the form of an infant human. It's conscious, just the same as we're conscious now, that consciousness isn't isn't conditioned yet with being British or Thai or American or Theravada Buddhist or any other religion. It's completely empty, an empty reality of consciousness. And so the baby, you know, has instinctive intelligence for survival. So it you know it can cry when it's and it needs attention when it's hungry, when it's tired. But it doesn't see these as kind of personal, in a personal way that we tend to ad adopt uh, these, these conditions of eating, sleeping, and taking care of our bodies and our social relationships are all conditioned after we're born. So just to point to pure conscious awareness that is natural, it isn't personal, that a newborn infant has. The infant itself is, isn't conditioned yet by the society, by the culture, by the religion. But its consciousness is the same as ours. So this consciousness that we're experiencing now is one consciousness, universal consciousness. And then the separate forms manifest in consciousness. So 
the newborn infant is conditioned by, usually in most cases, the mother has the most influence in its early years. And so then the father and the, and the brothers, sisters, family, and social identities that it acquires through conditioning, not through intention, not through any kind of intention on its own. It just takes to what's offered, and that's innocence. Innocent, like a newborn baby, is innocent. So then when you, especially in your teens, you, you are no longer innocent. You start questioning. You have, you're beginning to sexually mature and, and feel the forces of your body change in a way that is, is uh, just natural to the male body, female body is like this. So then we have various views about that, about what is right and wrong and proper and acceptable, unacceptable. So the conditioned realm is about what's right and wrong, what's true and false, good and bad. This is all phenomena, sankharas, that in this particular situation we begin to see in an objective way rather than in a personal way. The suffering in the First Noble Truth is about taking all this personally, seeing it always in terms of personal uh, identity. Our feelings are personal, our memories are personal, our body is, is very personal to us. And so in meditation, in bhavana, we're really questioning this, this, this personality that we've acquired after we're born, when we're still innocent, when we're, before we lose our innocence. Now, a newborn baby doesn't, has, has, just has the wisdom of survival, but innocence is easily corrupted. So in children, you know, there's so many problems around raising children, and, and uh, children are, you know, the kind of, in that innocent form, and just, you know, absorb what's available to them at the time, whether it's good or bad, right or wrong. Now the... Breaking through the illusions of identity with the forms, then we we return. We begin to recognize. Well, we've never lost. It's not that we've returned to anything, but we begin to recognize, realize pure consciousness before it was ever conditioned by culture, by the ego, by religion, by anything at all. So that's wisdom, the path of wisdom. When we begin to wisely reflect on the way things are, then the problems that we create about ourselves as separate individuals, our past, our hopes for the future, uh, 
our identities with the with the conditions of the body, speech, and mind, when we begin to see these as objects in consciousness that arise and cease, then there's wisdom available to every single one of us. It's natural wisdom. It's not acquired wisdom. So the Buddhist teachings, as they've been handed down through these centuries, through tradition, our teachings pointing to pure conscious awareness in the present moment. So that's why Buddhism is something that speaks well for the modern time. You know, people have criticized religion in general, like they're all ancient teachings, and society has changed considerably from the time of the Buddha, 2,564 years ago. It's, uh, you know, we have science and psychology, and the West has done a kind of marvelous, magical investigation of phenomena. So we have, you know, as we experience in modern life here at Amravati, the technology that, that is so much a part of our life these days, just flying in airplanes and so forth is, you know, quite amazing when you think of a hundred years ago this would, would not be available to most of us. So the modern Western society especially kind of developed this investigation into phenomena because it, it still believes that we are a phenomenon as a separate independent form. So like we have these movements now, human rights movements and so forth, where emphasize the rights of individuals. <clears throat> and uh, the rights are, you know, I'm free to do what I want with my body and I can think what I want, say what I want, because it's my life and me and mine is very prominent in this idea of human rights. And then traditions, like the Vinaya tradition, is about duties. So we, we have our duties in relationship to the, the Vinaya structures. So the duties are one way you know, prescribed through the traditional Vinaya, and the rights are then, the idea of human rights is based on the individual right to be who they are, do what they want, make their own decisions, and live freely, uh, you know, the idea of being free to do exactly what you feel like doing. Now, in the traditional form, with the structure of Vinaya, you know, we commit ourselves to these, to these particular precepts intentionally. They're not forced on us. It's nobody is ever forced to ordain as a monk or nun. It's, you have to ask three times and go through a kind of examination. So it's not like 
you know, you're, you're, you're threatened if you don't ordain, you'll go to hell, or there's no kind of, I've never heard that ever propounded in the Buddhist uh, systems. So we take on this traditional form and give up our individual rights that we have as citizens of modern societies to live within a structure in order to reflect on it. Because the structure itself is, is impersonal. It's not about uh, trying to develop an ego about whose vinaya is the best. We can do that. We can be very righteous about the precepts and, and make value judgments about others who don't seem to live up to our high standards. But the whole point of the vinaya is not to make you proud that you, you're a rule keeper or a precept follower, but to realize Dhamma as what you really are. Your real refuge is in the Dhamma. So then when you try to figure out what Dhamma is, you know, when what is Dhamma here and now? This is a Pali word. And so consciousness you know, is the gate to the deathless, or the gate to the door to Dhamma, to, to waking to ultimate reality. So you can translate Dhamma as ultimate reality. That's as good a translation as I've ever found in using the English words. And in this tradition, then we can live together as a sangha. If, if this was all about human rights, uh, you know, I'm free to say what I want, do what I want. You know, I am, you know, as, a, as an individual, I have a right to a sex life, to carrying money, to, to, you know, be free to say whatever I feel like saying. And and uh, protesting in movements and taking political sides. These are all human rights. And for democracy and, and individual freedom, these are all, you know, high-minded ideals. But this idea of me as a human body in a society proclaiming my that my body is my own affair and not yours, you can't tell me what to do with it, is Sakyaditi. You know, that's the, the big delusion that prevents enlightenment. You can believe that, and then you can act accordingly, according to, to what you think is right and wrong. But that even right and wrong our conditioned attitudes towards behavior, towards speech, towards objects. So then, in investigating Dhamma, apparent here and now, timeless, 
encouraging investigation. This is we we chant this in the morning evening pujas. Santiti ko akali ko ehi pasigo opanayiko budgetang waiti dapo inuhe. Then freedom then isn't about being free to do and say what we feel like doing and demanding our rights at the expense of everyone else. We actually begin to see the the suffering we create by clinging to views about ourselves. It may be right views in, in, in certain contexts, but they're not absolutely right. So the Buddha's teachings are, you know, the, just the basic Four Noble Truths is very excellent inheritance that we that we have from this tradition. So it's not about my rights, what I think, but I do have, you know, when I assert my rights as a senior monk or, uh, you know, see myself in terms of, of uh, my status in the Sangha, that can be very much sakyaditi if one is not aware of it. So this is where the Vinaya is our guide, rather than just personal takes on Vinaya. Now the pure consciousness It doesn't have a word, doesn't have judgment, doesn't have a vocabulary. So it's empty. It doesn't speak Pali or Sanskrit or any of those ancient languages, nor English nor any other language. So when you begin to recognize the silence, the inner silence, that, be, that is the substratum behind all the noise of your thoughts, memories, fears, desires that you begin to observe rather than take personally. This is, a, you know, the, the, what apparent here and now is. It's not something, you, you don't acquire it you have it already, but you, your, the avicca, the ignorance of it, is your conditioned attachment to the forms of your own body, of your own memories, thoughts, views, opinions, cultural biases, racial biases, gender biases. All these are separate, separate us. By identifying with all these specific conditions that are impermanent and changing, we create this sense of being threatened, fear, and, and uh, we see the world as something threatening out there, 
because we aren't in what we call our real home. We're kind of strangers in a jungle, which is quite, can be quite frightening. So fear is a, it's a result, you know, to fear what others think, to fear making a mistake, to fear uh, all kinds of possibilities for pain or disease or suffering. Because on the conditioned realm, fear is a, is a kind of primal experience. There's a lot to fear as a, as a human form. We, through the media now, we get all this news about shootings of people in protest movements and, and mass murders and the famines and wars going on in the Middle East. And, and we hear, you know, about the deaths of hundreds, thousands of innocent people, children. They emphasize the loss of children, especially. That's, that brings up the emotions. What are all these innocent people who are just the, the, the victims of, of a conflict, political conflict or religious conflict? What happens to them? You know, when, when they die, are they just nothing important or just, you know, what they call it collateral damage? That's the cold-hearted definition for the slaughter of innocent people. So, we, you know, in terms of political issues, you know, like there's so, so many threats right now of, of wars and conflicts everywhere in, the, in Asia and Europe, Africa. Why is that? When this ancient teaching, which is ultra-modern, really, timeless teaching, has been available for so long, you know, in, in, you know, for at least 2,564 years, which for most of us seems like a very long time. And even countries like Thailand and Sri Lanka have endless conflicts. Buddhist countries that have, are culturally kind of attuned to the Buddhist uh, teachings. Because Buddhism can be just another traditional form that we're conditioned by, rather than encouraged to investigate the reality of this moment. So formal religions, the problem is with them, is that they become merely traditional forms rather than means of liberation from forms. Where I assume that the basic purpose of religion and its origins is to be liberated from the limitations of forms and to realize ultimate reality. But the form, like all traditions, are words, they're forms, they're conventions. 
And of course they have, you know, when you, you know, you kind of appreciate religious, the, the, the ideas behind the, the forms and the conventions. But if you attach to a particular convention out of ignorance, then you see the other forms, the other religions as uh, threats, as heretical, as evil, as wrong. So this is what happens with them when you're attached to your thinking mind. You're always caught in this dualistic battle between right and wrong. What's allowable and what isn't? What's right and what's, what's good and what's bad? These are all dictated to us through the, these traditions and forms, conventions, But in, the, in our particular tradition, you know, it's based on samaditi, or right understanding, perfect understanding. So this, what is perfection, or complete whole, you know, even perfection is another word. And of course it has an opposite imperfection. But beyond perfection and imperfection, where perfection and imperfection cease, is in awareness, with no words whatsoever, but silence, silence, peace. So pointing to this silence, behind the thoughts, behind the emotions, it's the very basis of our being. It's what we really are, all of us. And that kind of perfect silence where things can, conditions can manifest and disappear. Where the phenomena arises and ceases. Where is that right now? Where is that re ultimate reality at this very present moment? It's here and now, apparent here and now, timeless. So I found a saying last year, which I have notes on my desk. This open unknowingness Notice this, open unknowingness is what we are and not something we know. So trying to know consciousness is, is you know, is futile. You can't know consciousness because that's what we are. You can know there's a knowing but there's no knower, and there's nothing known. So just this word to know, conscious isn't just a, a, a void of nothingness, but it is peaceful. And it's apparent here and now
So this open unknowingness is what we are, not something we can know. Just contemplate that. We're used to using the word no about things, about colors, about conditions, about forms. We acquire knowledge as individuals. We study books, we, uh, we study the media, we get degrees from universities. We can know a lot about things, about other things, about history, about science, psychology, anthropology, archaeology, all interesting things to know. But it's, it's acquired knowledge. It's, it's the kind of knowledge you can, that manifests and, and disappears. So that kind of knowledge is, is about me as a, as a human form, separate individual, knowing about history or culture, or science or psychology, about religion, about spirituality, whatever. And that's acquired knowledge. The Bariyate Dhamma, the, when we read the scriptures, the suttas, that's acquired knowledge. So we become Buddhists, we, we study Buddhism. They even have PhD courses in Buddhism these days at universities. So we can acquire a lot of knowledge about Buddhism in general, the history of Buddhism, all very interesting things to study. Mahayana Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism, modern Buddhism, Buddhism and psychology. So we acquire, maybe we become very intelligent in this way by having a, knowing a lot about everything. But the open unknowingness isn't acquired. You don't acquire that. It's not trying to dumb you down and, and reject knowledge. But it's where knowledge arises and ceases, comes and goes. So in this way, this open unknowingness it's liberation, it's freedom. Even if you're illiterate or you don't have a good memory, these are not obstructions towards enlightenment. So somebody was asking about how to deal with regret. How do we deal with regret, with guilt? And this is a 
common enough question, which I've addressed many times. But what is regret right now? What do you regret when you just try to think of something you regret? And what is it right now at this moment is a memory? Some view about the past, something you said or did that you shouldn't have said or done or you should have done better or you weren't clever enough or good enough or sensitive enough to be able to understand the situation. And so people wallow in this regret because they, they feel, you know, they, they've, they're not perfect. They have lived a life making mistakes, making errors, misjudging things, blaming others for things that are unfair. And what is that at this moment is memory. In the, you can place that in the five khandas of Sanya Kanda. Translates as memory. So any of us, all of us, when we think of the past, we can, there's a lot to regret. Because we learn through trial and error. We don't, we're not born in, into this world with wisdom to do everything well and perfect from the very beginning. You know, we have to learn by, as an infant, learning how to crawl, just some basic movement, crawling on the floor, holding on to the furniture. And if the mother says, you've got two legs, you can walk, you know, it's true, the, baby, the, new, in, the child has two legs, but it's not, you know, it has to fall down before it can stand up straight. And most of what we learn is from suffering, from falling down, making a mistake, getting it wrong, saying the things we shouldn't. And that's how we learn from life. So suffering is not something to be despised or to try to get rid of, but see it as you know, a noble truth that we're not going to get everything right all the time and be perfectly benevolent and kind and, and our actions, speech, and so forth, attain a, a, a saintly perfection. Because the conditioned realm isn't saintliness is there, but it's a phenomena that arises and ceases. The conditioned realm is about being born, growing up, getting old, and dying. And if that's what you think you are, somebody that was born, growing up, getting old, and will die in the future, then that limits you to these kind of tight forms, you feel suffocated by, you feel, you know, as you get older, your body doesn't function so well. You can resent that. Resent the fact that your vision isn't very good or you can't hear like you used to or 
you have high blood pressure or diabetes or some kind of disease. And as a person, as an ego, we don't want those. We don't want to get old. We don't want to get sick. Because the ideals for modern life are based on youth, on good health, happiness, not on Dhamma and the way things are. So ideals of perfect physical forms held up for men and women, you know, that we compare ourselves with. We suffer if we, we see the imperfections of our own physical form. We can imagine a life of speaking always in a kind and understanding way of being sensitive to situations and never saying something uh, offensive to anyone, never telling a lie. This is an imagination about becoming a saint. But these forms are not saintly forms. Saints are ideals of perfection. But where these are human forms that have to learn through trial and error. So this teaching about the Four Noble Truths is about being human. You can't really teach dogs or cats, horses or cows, Four Noble Truths. Like trying to get the cats here at Amaravati to keep the precepts. They can't do it. You know, I remember walking Jongrom many years ago out in the field and, the, and this beloved cat that everybody loved walked across my Jongrom path and caught a bird in its mouth. You know, and this cat had been fed by monks and nuns, cuddled and encouraged to keep the priest out. <laughs> But it can't do it. Its nature is to kill birds and mice. That's part of its instinctual survival mechanism. Can't reflect on the bird wants to live as much as, as the cat does. We can do that. We can, we can be, reflect on nature. On, we can reflect on a cat wants to survive and be happy needs food to eat, needs, needs it, it's for, and identifies with it. It's subjected to the limitations of its form. It can't reflect on the cat form being anything other than oneself, operating from the species that it, that it is part of. So cats act like this, dogs like that, birds fly, fish swim, that's the way it is. Humans are born, grow up, get old and die. 
but humans, you know, this word Buddha, you know, is a kind of powerful symbol for awakened consciousness, this reflective ability. It's not intellectual, it's not a, about getting a PhD in Buddhist studies or studying Abhidhamma. It's about putting into practice, making the, these teachings so they support your awareness in the present. So what's more prominent in human experience than suffering? You know, that's something we can all relate to, no matter who you are, no matter how fortunate, no matter how wealthy, how healthy, how perfect your form might be, how privileged you might be as an individual or gifted. Suffering is the very nature of conditioned phenomena. Unsatisfactoriness. When we see, see, seek permanent satisfaction from what is basically unsatisfactory, that's suffering. Now, when I talk like this, one can take a very, you know, pessimistic view, you know, well, there's got to be a meaning to life, a purpose. What is the purpose of my life? Does life for, for an individual human being have any meaning? And when you hear the news about collateral damage, people in Yemen just being slaughtered, children and, and starvation in Afghanistan and Ethiopia and so forth is just common news all these people, what's the meaning and purpose of their life? Just because they happen to be in the way of a bomb or a killer soldier or something like that? Is that meaningless or is there a purpose to their life? Where well, we all want meaning and purpose for our lives as individuals. Because each of those individuals that were slaughtered as collateral damage must have felt some purpose for their life as raising children, having a family, providing for family, all the usual ways that human beings identify with, with their duties, responsibilities, their cultural identities, their religious traditions. But meaning and purpose our ideals, you know, is there meaning to become enlightened or the purpose for all of us is for us to become enlightened? Is that the purpose of human existence? So we can believe that. That's something to believe in. But in awareness here and now, there's no purpose to it. It's, it's, it's beyond purpose or meaning. It's the open unknowingness here and now, not something we can know because we are this knowing, this unknowingness, this peace, this silent peace that we begin to respect and understand and, and relax in, abide in.
Do I offer this as a reflection?